John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. The Good Shepherd Discourse. I hope you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1, John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please grant us illumination now from the Holy Spirit. Anytime we open the Bible, we stand in need of the Holy Spirit's insight that we might understand, believe, and obey the things of God that have been revealed in your word. So we ask, Father, very humbly for the Holy Spirit to do his work today, that our eyes would be opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, please keep me from error. I pray that the opening of your word now would be clear and plain and accurate. We pray this, Father, so that Christ is known through his word and so that his body would be built up in the truth and thus be brought safely into your presence through Jesus' leadership. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes his relationship to his people with a number of vivid images. In Jeremiah, for example, God calls himself a father, and Israel is his firstborn son. In Hosea, God uses the marriage relationship to capture the depth of his love 
for his people. Or consider Isaiah, where God is a vine dresser and his people are his vineyard. Father and son, husband and wife, vine dresser and vineyard. Those are just a few examples, but it's enough to make the point the relationship between God and his people is so profound that when you try to describe it, images just quickly start multiplying. But perhaps the most frequent image of all in the Old Testament for God in relationship to his people is the image of a shepherd. Think of that seminal moment of redemption in the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt. What is God like in the exodus from Egypt? He's like a shepherd leading his people out of bondage and into the promised land. And it didn't stop with the Exodus, did it? By the time you get to the Psalms, if you were just reading through the Old Testament, by the time you get to the Psalms, the image is firmly established. We think of the beloved Psalm 23, where David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So go to nearly any part of the Old Testament, and you will find some aspect of God as the shepherd of his people. But as the Old Testament draws to a close, again, if you were just reading through start to finish, as the Old Testament draws to a close, this image of shepherding takes on a different tone and not entirely for the better. God's shepherd leadership was intended to be displayed through human shepherds who cared for God's people in God's name. That was the ideal. But by the time you get to the Old Testament prophets, Israel's shepherds had lost sight of God, the true shepherd, and therefore God's people were being mistreated. God's sheep were not being cared for. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a glimpse of how bad the situation has become. We heard it earlier in our reading that Bill read for us, Ezekiel 34. God says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves... Should not shepherds feed the sheep, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought? That's a far cry from Psalm 23, isn't it? And it gets worse. Again, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for them, none to seek them. In fact, that's how the Old Testament ends. With God's people scattered and in desperate need for someone to come and bring God's leadership to them and shepherd them as God promised that he would shepherd his people. As we come to John chapter 10, it's precisely that sense of desperation that helps us understand Jesus' teaching. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, He's not simply using a quaint image to warm people's hearts. Now Jesus is taking all of that Old Testament history and he's centering it upon himself. From the Exodus to Psalm 23 to the prophet Ezekiel, all that God promised to do as the shepherd of his people, all that God promised to do, Jesus now fulfills when he says, I am the good shepherd. To appreciate the weight of this statement, it helps to remember the context here in John's gospel. The previous chapter, John chapter 9 that we just finished, the previous chapter saw Jesus interacting with with the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? 
the supposed shepherds of Israel, right? But what have the Pharisees just done at the end of John chapter 9? What did they just do? They cast the formerly blind man out of the synagogue and they threatened anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ. They threatened them with expulsion from the presence of God. That's not gathering God's people, that's scattering them. You see, it's precisely the same situation that Ezekiel was speaking about in chapter 34. Heartless, fake shepherds who harm the people of God. Again, if you look at our text, this is why Jesus begins the chapter as he does. Why does he start by talking about thieves and robbers who sneak into the sheepfold and steal the sheep? Why, such, why use such strong language? Because that's who he's talking to. Thieves and robbers. The Pharisees. The supposed shepherds who aren't shepherds at all. They're harming the people of God. So it's not an exaggeration to say that John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse, both sums up the Old Testament expectations for salvation and, and explains the entire reason why the Son of God has come. All of those Old Testament passages about God shepherding His people, all of those passages are coming together here in John 10 and finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. No longer will the people of God be scattered. No longer will they be haphazardly led. No, now God will shepherd them. And amazingly, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, will be at the head of the flock, leading God's people where they can't lead themselves. Now, so far we've just, we've just thought about the Old Testament background. We haven't even looked at a single verse yet. We haven't even gotten to the meat of the matter. That's how amazing God's Word is. You can think about the background and be encouraged. As we start thinking about some of the details, let me tell you how we're going to proceed. This is how we're going to work our way through the passage. We're going to start with just a simple observation from verse 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus does not merely claim to be the shepherd. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. That adjective makes all the difference. That adjective is grace, and it gets at the heart of Jesus' mission. He not only leads the people of God, but he shepherds them in a way that only he could do. That's what makes him good. It's the unique display of grace and strength in one person. So based on that simple observation, he's not just the shepherd, he's the good shepherd. We're going to spend our time considering what it is that makes Jesus the good shepherd. What are the marks of his ministry that separate him from all the other shepherds that have come before him? What are the marks of his ministry that make him better than Moses, better than David, better than Isaiah? The good shepherd. What are the marks of his ministry? There are six of them. That's like two sermons in one. There are six marks that we're going to consider on what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. You ready? Here we go. Mark number one from verses one to five. The good shepherd leads his sheep with faithful care. That's mark number one. The good shepherd leads his sheep with faithful care. We already noted the thieves and robbers of verse 1. That's referring to the Pharisees, at least in this context. The contrast, however, comes in verse 2. Listen again, verse 2. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So unlike the thieves who sneak in, 
the shepherd enters by the door like you're supposed to. Later in verse 7, Jesus will clarify that he is also the door. He's the only way to enter the family of God. But here in verse 2, the point is the contrast between a thief and the shepherd. Thieves sneak in because the sheep don't belong to them. The shepherd, though, walks right in without, without hesitation because the sheep are his. He knows them. They belong to him. In fact, Jesus quickly emphasizes this personal bond between the shepherd and the sheep. Look at verse 3. To him, that is the shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is key for the passage. Shepherds in the first century did not drive their sheep from behind. They, They didn't stand at the back of the flock cracking a whip. No, shepherds led from the front, and they would often call each sheep by a specific name. The bond between the shepherd and his sheep was so deep that even the sound of the shepherd's voice was enough for the sheep to follow. And he led them from the front. This is why the shepherd doesn't have to sneak in, because the sheep know him. They belong to him. Jesus then expands on that leadership, verse 4. When the shepherd has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. On their own, sheep have almost no chance of finding safety. Sheep are notoriously dull and dim-witted. The Bible calls us sheep, so I don't know what that means about us. Sheep have almost no chance of finding safety on their own. They easily wander off track. And sometimes they walk right into danger, not even aware that they are headed for danger. And so knowing that, how does the shepherd care for his prone-to-wander sheep? How does he care for them? By leading them from the front, not from the back. By being out in front of them. If there's danger to come, the shepherd will meet it first. If there's a turn that they need to take, the shepherd will make sure that they don't miss it. He goes ahead of them. He's at the front of the flock. What's more, this leadership is effective. Notice in verse 5, Jesus says the sheep won't follow a stranger. Why not? If sheep are so dim-witted, why won't they follow a stranger? Because they don't know a stranger's voice. In other words, the shepherd's voice is so familiar. His leadership is so effective. All he has to do is speak the sheep's name. And the sheep know who to follow. And they're trained by that voice to even... Reject the leadership of others. All in all then, how does the shepherd lead? He leads from the front, not from the back. And his leadership is effective. Faithfully effective. This idea of leading from the front is a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. It's also essential for our salvation. Why are we assured of reaching the heavenly presence of God? Why are we assured of making it to the celestial city, to use John Bunyan's language? Why are we assured of making it to heaven? Because Jesus has gone ahead of us to open the way for us into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4, for example, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Just like the shepherd, Jesus leads from the front. He has gone ahead of us like a trailblazing pioneer. And He's opened the way for us into the presence of God. And He is leading us on that way 
through his voice. He's leading us through his word. Friends, have you ever considered what this means? Jesus leading from the front through his voice, his word. Have you ever considered what this means for the gathering of the local church on the Lord's Day? What we're doing right now? Each Lord's Day, when we gather together to worship, we experience the shepherd leadership of Jesus Christ. How, you ask? Jesus is not physically present. True, he's not physically present. But his voice is present. He leads us through his word. And his sheep know his voice. So each Lord's Day is an expression of Jesus' shepherd leadership. What's happening right now? Jesus is out front of us, leading us to God's heavenly presence. Friends, this is why it's vital that as much as you're able, you gather with the people of God when the church gathers. It's not simply to be present, to be counted, or to be on the roll. It's to be shepherded by Jesus Christ. It's because we need His leadership To make it to the end. This is how Jesus is getting us to heaven. By leading us through his voice. Through his word. When his people gather together. Overall this is why Jesus is the good shepherd. Because he leads his sheep with faithful care. That's Mark number 1. Mark number 2 from verses 7 to 10. The good shepherd feeds his sheep with abundant provision. The good shepherd feeds his sheep with abundant provision. You'll notice in verse 6 that those present don't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't recognize the shepherd's voice. So in verse 7, Jesus expands on his earlier teaching and and he provides some clarity. Look at verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Clearly, Jesus is not speaking literally. He's not a literal door. It's a good reminder that the Bible uses figures of speech in order to describe what God is like. He's not a literal door. Rather, Jesus' point is that He alone is the way into the presence of God. If you want to be a part of God's heavenly flock, how do you get in? Only through Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins and trusting in His blood. Those who try to come in by some other way don't belong to Him. They're not part of God's flock. They're thieves who try to do harm. Jesus refers to some of these thieves in verse 8. You see it there? He references those who came before him. He's probably talking about false messiahs who came ahead of him. These pretenders claimed to grant access to God's presence, but their claims fell on deaf ears. No false messiah will ever lead astray one of God's true sheep. Why not? Because the sheep know the master's voice and they recognize the voice of a stranger. This is part of how Jesus protects his sheep. They know his voice and because of that, they don't listen to pretenders. Then in verse 9, Jesus describes what happens to a person who enters through the door. Look at verse 9. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, this this is an incredible promise that stretches back to the Old Testament of all places. In Deuteronomy 28, God promised His people 
abundant life is found in being obedient to God's covenant. If you read the end of Deuteronomy, there are curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. And one of the blessings of obedience is this abundant life of God's provision. Those who kept God's covenant, Deuteronomy says, would go in and out of the promised land. They would go in and out of God's presence. They would go in and out and enjoy the abundance of God's gift. So in verse 9, when Jesus talks about going in and out to find pasture, he's not not simply talking about grazing on green grass. He's talking about feasting on the presence of God. He's talking about salvation. The fulfillment of the covenant. That's the pasture that Jesus leads his people into. It's the life-giving pasture of dwelling in the presence of God and feasting on his provision. Jesus makes this very clear with a contrast in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Notice what he says. It's a very famous verse. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those who sneak in to the sheepfold ravage God's people. That's the sense of Jesus' words here. It's ruin, devastation, mayhem. Those who sneak in are thieves. Jesus, on the other hand, gives not only life, but abundant life. Do you see it? I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The idea is to be overflowing, to go beyond what's necessary. That's, That's the nature of God's goodness, friends. He doesn't merely supply what we need. He goes over and above. He's abundant in His provision. So Jesus gives us not just life, but abundant life. Now, we need to be clear on this point that this phrase in verse 10, abundant life, is often misused even in Christian circles. So I want to be clear on what Jesus means by abundant life. Abundant life is not some higher plane of spiritual blessing. There are not Christians in here today who have abundant life and some who don't. Abundant life is not a higher plane of spiritual blessing. Abundant life is not having all of your needs met. Far too often, I'm afraid, that's how, that's how this is taught on. We, we detach the promise of abundant life from Jesus as though Jesus' mission was to give us a life full of good stuff and material blessings. And while that might sound good from the world's perspective, it's actually pathetic compared to what Jesus actually gives his people. The good shepherd doesn't give his sheep stuff. He gives them himself in covenant relationship. And through the good shepherd, the sheep have access to the Father through the power of the Spirit. That's abundant life. It's knowing the triune God and enjoying the saving gift of his presence. So if you're a believer today, if you're a believer today, God's not holding out on you some level of blessing. He's not waiting until you ramp your obedience up to the requisite level so that he can then give you the abundant life that you don't deserve yet. That's not how God operates. The abundant life he gives you is to know him in Jesus Christ. So tomorrow when you wake up the Bible and open, when you wake up in the morning and open the Bible and read it and set out to commune with God and pray, what you experience there in the presence of God is abundant life. He's not holding out on you. 
That means there's a necessary question for us to ask ourselves at this point. If I were just being really just blunt with you, so much of American Christianity loves God for what he gives and not for who he is. So there's a necessary question here. Is my life of faith, is my life of faith focused on knowing God through Christ, empowered by the Spirit? When you close your eyes and envision what it would be like to be truly blessed by God, what is it that you see? When you close your eyes and just, and just envision, oh man, if I had the blessed life, what would, it, what would it be? What do you see when you close your eyes and envision it? Do you see more stuff? Do you see more ease? Do you see more material blessings? Or do you see more of God? Do you see more knowledge of God? More understanding of God's love that flows out of you in love for others. Friends, I'm pleading with you to ask this question today. I asked myself this question all this week. Is my vision of the Christian life focused on what God gives me or who God is for me? Jesus feeds his sheep with abundant provision. That provision is himself. And in response, we should make it our aim to know God as he's revealed in Christ. That's Mark number two. Mark number three. The good shepherd guards his sheep with his own life. The good shepherd guards his sheep with his own life. Verse 11 is the main point of the teaching. Notice again what the Lord says, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It was not unusual for shepherds to protect their sheep from danger by standing in harm's way. David, for example, fought with wild animals in order to protect his flock. So it wasn't unusual, it's not unusual for a shepherd to stand in the gap and protect his, his sheep. But what Jesus says here in verse 11 goes well beyond what a shepherd would typically do. Jesus is not talking about standing in the gap. He's not talking about fighting a bear or a lion. Jesus speaks of actually laying down his life. To put it very simply, Jesus dies so that his sheep might live. He lays down his life for the sheep. Please don't miss that little word, for. When Jesus says he dies for his sheep, he means that he dies in their place, on their behalf, as their substitute, taking their punishment. The shepherd, the shepherd substitute him, substitutes himself for his sheep. That's a kind of leadership that no earthly shepherd would ever do. And as a result, the sheep are now eternally protected. Notice the illustration Jesus uses, verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. You can hear the danger in Jesus' illustration. A hired hand is not like a shepherd. A hired hand is in it for the money. So when the danger comes, he runs away. And why wouldn't he? His only concern is his own life. The sheep don't belong to him. But not so with the good shepherd. He lays down his life so that his sheep might be protected. That's Jesus' point 
in connecting verse 11 and verse 12. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, verse 11, and therefore the danger in verse 12 won't come to them because he won't run away. He won't leave them. Jesus wants us to see that if he laid down his life for his people, then there is absolutely nothing that can harm them as they travel the road of faith to the heavenly pasture of God's presence. If he died for the sheep, then there's nothing that can harm the sheep. We need to press this for a minute. There are times in a Christian's life, in a Christian's life, there are times in a a Christian's life when you may be overcome with fear about your faith or even about your own salvation. There may be times where you ask questions like, will I actually make it to the end trusting in God and in Christ? What if some awful hardship strikes and destroys my faith? There are times when Christians ask those kinds of questions. I've had seasons like that. I had seasons like that while I was pastoring. Maybe you've had seasons like that. Maybe you're in one of them right now. Not sure if you're going to make it to the end. Not sure if your faith is going to hold out. If so, then I want you to hear the encouragement from the Savior here in John chapter 10. He laid down his life for the sheep. His death is your assurance. If you write down only one thing today, write down that. Jesus' death is your assurance of salvation. Because he died for you, he will not fail to keep you to the end. If he lost even one of his sheep, then that means his death was in vain. And that's blasphemous. He did not die in vain. He died for his people, and therefore he will keep them to the end. If Jesus lost you, then he would not be a good shepherd. But he is the good shepherd, so he will never lose you, even to the point of death. So, when those seasons of fear and those those moments of doubt begin to rise, when your mind starts that spiral down into the dark hole of thinking, maybe maybe I'm not going to make it, maybe my faith isn't going to hold out, when that moment comes, notice I said when that moment comes, not if it comes, when that moment comes, remember, Jesus is the good shepherd who guards you with his own life. If he died for you, then there is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand. There's no better anchor for your soul. There's no better hope for your salvation than this. Jesus guards his sheep and he guards them with his own life. So they will make it to the end. That's Mark number three. The fourth mark is closely connected to the third. The good shepherd knows his sheep with unending commitment. The good shepherd knows his sheep with unending commitment. Jesus returns to the image, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus has already mentioned both of those points earlier in his teaching. He knows the sheep and the sheep know him. But notice the depth that Jesus introduces in verse 15. He knows the sheep and the sheep know him. But how deep 
is the relationship between Jesus and his sheep. Well, as deep as the Father's relationship is to the Son. Look at verse 15. I know my own, and my own know me, here it comes, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we're going to proceed with a bit of trembling here. We're going to try to understand the depths of God's nature within himself, which is the same as saying we're not going to understand the depths of God's nature in himself. So we ought to proceed with just a dose of humility, okay? So there's my caveat. Here's my attempt to unpack verse 15. There's no relationship in the universe as deep and as personal as the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. For all eternity, God the Father and God the Son have known one another fully and completely. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, so that each participates fully in the life of the other, while at the same time maintaining their distinct personhood. There's no aspect of the Father that the Son does not know, and there's no aspect of the Son that the Father does not know. And this relationship between the Father and the Son can never be broken. From eternity past to eternity future, the Father and the Son dwell with one another in perfect harmony, complete knowledge, and unbreakable commitment. This is the glorious mystery of the triune God's life within Himself. Now, look back at verse 15 and catch the magnitude of Jesus' statement. The relationship between Jesus and His people is similar to the relationship between the Father and the Son. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. What does that mean? We could try to put it like this. The communion between the Father and the Son gives rise to the union between the Son and His people. The communion between Father and Son, eternally, unbroken, perfect, complete, that communion gives rise to the union between Jesus and His people. So it's not a relationship of mere acquaintance. It's a relationship of deep personal insight and profound commitment. Jesus withholds nothing from His people, just as the Father withholds nothing from His Son. Jesus shares His life with His people, as the Father shares His life with the Son. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have eternal life through faith in Christ. Eternal life is not just an unending duration of existence. It, heaven is, is, when we talk about heaven being eternal, we don't just mean that it's, it, that it's an unending series of Saturdays. That's not what eternal life means. Eternal life is to participate in the very life of God Himself. That's why Jesus says that we have eternal life now. How do we have eternal life now? By knowing God who has life in Himself. The communion between the Father and the Son gives rise to the union between Jesus and His people. It's what Jesus is trying to get at here. He's, his purpose is to encourage us. If you belong to Christ, I should have just said this to start with. If you belong to Christ, the Good Shepherd knows you and He will never stop knowing you. Everyone wants to be known. Even the person who hides from everyone else out of fear really wants to be known and is afraid they won't be 
which is why they withdraw. Everyone wants to be known. And so if you belong to Christ, the good shepherd knows you and he will never stop knowing you. How do you know that he will never stop knowing you? Because the father will always be the father to his son and the son will always be the son to his father. And just as the father and the son know one another, so also the good shepherd knows his sheep. It's an incredible sense of encouragement. For all eternity, Jesus will be life to those who trust in his name. That's why he's the good shepherd. Because he knows his sheep with this unending commitment. That's Mark number four. Mark number five. The good shepherd seeks his sheep without fail. The good shepherd seeks his sheep without fail. Notice verse 16. Jesus highlights the global scope of his mission. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. What's Jesus talking about? Remember his audience is primarily Jewish. So when he talks about other sheep that are not of this fold, he's talking about Gentiles. Gentiles being included in the family of God. And this is exactly what the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do. Isaiah 49, for example. It's too light a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. So, verse 16 is a clear claim of identity from Jesus. He's telling you who he is. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the light of the nations who draws all the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation into one flock with one shepherd. And I want you to notice the certainty of that mission. Just just notice Jesus' language. Verse 16, he says, I must bring them and they will listen to my voice. I love the certainty there. Jesus does not say that they might listen to his voice. He says they will without fail, listen to his voice. There will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the good shepherd's flock. Why? Because the good shepherd is sovereign and the sheep know his voice and they will listen to him. Even today, right now, as the gospel is being preached all across the globe, Jesus is gathering his people, those given to him by his Father. As the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit grants life they hear the shepherd's ver uh, voice and they believe. That mission cannot fail. Scott and Linnell Bailey in Papua New Guinea are resting their work on this unshakable promise that God's people will hear Jesus' voice and believe. And they will be saved. This is why we proclaim the gospel to our children and to our neighbors and to our co-workers and to the ends of the earth. Because the sheep will Listen to Jesus' voice. This is the bedrock of our hope in taking the gospel. How does the shepherd seek his sheep? Through his voice, his word. I don't know of a better encouragement to gospel mission than this one. The reason that we speak, the reason we share the gospel, is because the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they will listen to him. And what we speak is the shepherd's word, the gospel. I don't know of a better encouragement for us as we seek to take the gospel into our own homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and to the very ends of the earth. Those can be scary propositions, right? 
and I, I'm, I'm talking even about not just as a, as a pastor who preaches, but sometimes as a father. It can be scary, those can be scary moments. To be entrusted with the truth of God for your own children and then for your neighbors and your co-workers and for tribes to the very ends of the earth, that can be a daunting proposition. How could we be so audacious to think that we could take the gospel to the ends of the earth and be successful? Because the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they will listen to it. Friends, there's no other encouragement than that. And so I pray that it would be true in our lives that we would be quick to speak the shepherd's word because the sheep hear his voice and they will listen. That's Mark number five. Final Mark, Mark number six of the shepherd's ministry. The good shepherd comforts his sheep with his own resurrection. The good shepherd comforts his sheep with his own resurrection. A couple, of, <clears throat> a couple of times now, Jesus has referenced his own death. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. And if you think about it, that could be um, a cause for concern. If the shepherd dies, what happens to the sheep? If the shepherd lays down his life, won't the sheep be scattered? So there's this problem hanging out there in Jesus' teaching. What happens when you die? Notice the answer Jesus gives in verse 17. It's not just an answer, it's comfort. Jesus says, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Did you catch what Jesus said? His death is not the end of the story. In fact, his death is part of the plan. His death is the means to an even greater end, his own resurrection. Why does the shepherd die? so that he might rise again in victory over the grave. This is the greatest act of obedience from the Son to his Father. This is the pinnacle of the love that exists between the Father and the Son, that the Son would lay down his life in order to rise again for the salvation of his people. As Jesus dies on the cross, we're witnessing the love of God between the Father and the Son. As the Son obeys his Father to the end. And amazingly, Jesus has complete authority to carry out this mission. Notice verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. From the human perspective, the cross appears to be the world's triumph over God. Jesus was unable to stop those wicked people who hated him, and in the end, he lost the battle and they killed him. That's what the cross looks like from the world's perspective. But the, real, <clears throat> the reality was much different. Whenever you think about the cross, friends, it's important to remember that Jesus was not a victim. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly with absolute authority. And in the same way, Jesus took his life back up in triumph over the darkness of this world. Yes, the good shepherd died. But he didn't stay dead. Death cannot hold the good shepherd, for he has authority not even death can break. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater comfort in life than this. If Jesus has this level of authority, even over death, then there is nothing that could possibly harm his flock or keep him from bringing us safely into God's presence. This is how the gospel is meant to sustain you and encourage you 
on a day-by-day basis. We don't simply believe the gospel on day one as a Christian. We believe the gospel every day as a Christian. So that whatever situation we face, it's the reality of the resurrection that sustains us. The good shepherd comforts his sheep, and he does so with a truth that answers every moment the reality of his own resurrection. So, we return to that question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon. What makes Jesus not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd? It's the ministry He performs on our behalf. Let's summarize it. He leads us with faithfulness. He feeds us with abundant provision. He guards us with His own life. He knows us with unending commitment. He seeks us without fail. And He comforts us with His own resurrection. Truly, friends, He is the Good Shepherd. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, there's more here that we ought to see and understand and believe and know. We praise You that Jesus Christ fulfills the promises of Your Word, going all the way back to the Old Testament and stretching all the way forward to eternity future, that He is our Good Shepherd and He will be our Good Shepherd until the very end of time. Lord, give us hope and comfort and confidence in Him. Father, and then, empowered by our hope and comfort and confidence in Him, help us to take this good news to those around us and even to the ends of the earth. Remind us, Father, that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and when they hear it, they will listen and they will follow. May we be faithful, God, to speak his word and proclaim his voice so that all for whom he has died will be brought in to enjoy your presence forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.